In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who died to give us a holy example, help us to receive the grace to die to our sins. Help us to receive the grace of your Blessed Mother, who intercedes for us and helps us. And may we meet her at the foot of the cross. And may we, as St. John, take her into our homes and learn from her. And so we pray. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, the seal of wisdom, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. At the foot of the cross, where are all the men? We go back and we look at that passion narrative of our Lord crucified on the cross. And who is below the cross but Mary, his mother, St. Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clophis, and St. John. But where are the men? Where's Peter? Where's Andrew? Where's James? Where are they? Well, we know that it's that whole thing of men. They had to fight or have a flight. And they were afraid. They were afraid for their lives. They were afraid of what may happen to them. And so, of course, they weren't there. And sometimes, when we look upon the crucifix, we think it's very much uh, almost a mirror image of the church today. Where are all the men? Sometimes we think the ladies are there, but the men aren't there. But when we study history and we read our scriptures, we see that the men regrouped. They came back. They had a resolve. And they fought the good fight. So there's something to learn. And I think of how Venerable Archbishop Sheen wrote so beautifully to the men of the day about the seven deadly sins. He said, we run away from the cross because we're ashamed of our sins. When we sin, we actually turn our back on God walk away from him. But when we have a conversion, we turn around and we go towards him. And so it's this challenge of conversion that we turn around and we come back to the foot of the cross. It's almost like a sports analogy in a way. I'm not much of a sports fanatic, but when I listen to my friends who are passionate about sports, they talk about the coach wanting to review the film wanting to replay the tapes, studying their mistakes, what went wrong. And I think we can learn a similar example by studying where we went wrong and what we can do to amend our lives, to have that true conversion. And so we come to the foot of the cross, and who is there? But Mary, our mother. And she receives us because she is the refuge of sinners. She comes, she embraces us, and she says, I love you. I want you now to listen to the high priest give you some counsel. Many of you men today receive the grace of the sacrament of confession. And the priest absolved you of your sins and he gave you a penance. But in some cases, he gave you counsel. He gave you some counsel, some wisdom to say, try this, try that. Our Lord, being the high priest, gives us counsel. And it's this counsel that I want to speak about today. And the remedy 
seven deadly sins are his seven last words. And you're going to see how Archbishop Sheen saw how these last words were truly the remedy and how they're doing it. Now, I'm blessed in that I put together this book, and some of you have seen it already. It's called The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, a Sheen Anthology. Archbishop Sheen's writings on the seven last words. And he actually wrote nine books on the seven last words, but always changed it up and had a different theme. One year he wrote about the seven last words of the Beatitudes. And so he gave seven Beatitudes and tied them. For example, he'd say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And he used the Beatitude, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He'd say the words, I thirst. Say, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall have their fill. And so he had this great gift of taking a theme and attaching it to the seven last words. He did the same thing with the seven virtues, he did the same things with the seven words of Mary, he did the same things with the seven deadly sins. And that's what I'm going to spend a little bit of time with you today. He wrote a book in 1939 entitled Victory Over Vice, and it was the first book that I ever read from Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. The year was 2009, and it was this book that put me on a path of amending my life and becoming a devotee to Archbishop Sheen's writings, his wisdom. Because for many years, I, you know, I'm a sinner, but I never really feel, felt guilty for my sin. Because I, I guess I never realized just how much sin cost our Lord. I give presentations on the crucifix, and I always have a crucifix on me. This is my crucifix. It's a, I call this the Jesus the Listener crucifix. It's a, from the Passion of Fathers. And it's our Lord with his arms outstretched, but he's leaning forward to listen to us. And there's a lot to be learned from the crucifix. And, you know, I was looking over to St. Aloysius Gonzaga, and you see he's looking intently upon the crucifix. St. Thomas Aquinas, his famous line is that I've learned more from the crucifix than any book. I've learned more from the crucifix than any book. And it's so true, because I think as a church, we don't spend a lot of time on the passion narrative. We maybe study the Good, Good Friday, you know, words of our Lord's seven last words only once a year, if not. Sometimes we don't always meditate on the seven last words. So liturgically, we don't see those scriptures a great deal. Our Lord's words, Father, forgive them, you know what they're doing. I thirst, this day you'll be with me in paradise. You know what I mean? It's just this. We don't really meditate enough on the seven last words. And Sheen wanted to make sure that he brought that to our attention. On his very last Good Friday address, he said, this is the 58th consecutive year spoken on our Lord's Passion and seven last words. 58 years, he wanted to send a message to us to look to the cross and learn from our Lord these great words, these, his last words. And of course, let me now share with you a few of these antidotes for the sin. Many of us struggle with the sin of anger. And so, in reparation for the sin of anger and how to deal with it, our Lord says from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And when you think about that, of course our Lord in his life preached forgiveness. He said, you know, don't let anger, you know, fall on you before you go to sleep. You know, don't go to bed without something on your heart. He said, you know, talk to our Father, forgive others. It's just, it seems like a bunch, you know, again, quoting you know, passage or verse. But you know what I'm saying. Our Lord preached forgiveness in his teachings on earth. But at the foot of, on the cross, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. My neighbor drives me crazy. I have one of those crazy neighbors that just does things that just make my head scratch. But I was able to, I guess, forgive him in a way. Because he didn't know, he doesn't know what to do with I talked to my neighbor one day and I said, do you ever go to church? No, I've never been to church in my life. You ever gone to Catholic? I don't know. He's been unchurched. He doesn't know the Bible, doesn't know anything. So he doesn't, he truly doesn't know what he's doing. And so our Lord says to us, a lot of times ignorance that is, um, you know, lets people get away with it. If people knew what they were doing, if they knew they were putting God on the cross, they wouldn't have done it. And that's why our Lord says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So if you have an anger problem, an anger management problem, look to the Lord. Our Lord challenges us. He gives us that parable of the, uh, the slave, of course, who owed his master a great deal of money. And the, the, the master pulled him in and said, listen, you got to pay me what you owe me. And he goes, please, please give me more time. Give me more time. Like he owed him $12 million. And he forgave him, forgave him of his debt. But then he walked down the street and he met a fellow, a fellow slave who owed him five cents. And he just strangled him and put him into jail. And of course, we know how the story goes that the master found out about thief's actions. And of course, he threw him into jail. Uh, he was shown mercy, he didn't show mercy to his fellow slave. And he paid the price. So there is something that we need to learn from our Lord in that example of Scripture about forgiving our neighbor. Forgiving our neighbor. Because the Lord has forgiven us of even greater sins. We have to know that God has mercy and that He's forgiven us a great deal. So why should we uh, have the same type of anger? We move and try to tackle the sin of envy and we think of that dynamic of the two thieves. And uh, there's a lot to be learned from the two thieves. Um, when the crucifixion began, both thieves were actually heaping insults upon the Lord. They were joining in with the crowd. But the good thief all of a sudden heard our Lord say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so something happened in the good thief. He started to experience, of course, pain, physical pain. And he started to realize that he was guilty. He was deserving of what, you know, the punishment that he gave him. But our Lord was innocent. He knew that the Lord was innocent. And so the other thief, of course, who envied the Lord, he envied the Lord's power, said, if you be the Christ, why don't you just come down from the cross and get me down at the same time, and so I can go back to what I want to do. One of the thieves was saying, take me down. The other thief was saying, take me up. And of course, the good thief then challenged his fellow thief. He says, do you not fear God? We deserve what we're getting. He's innocent. And looking to the Lord, then he said, 
Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. It was a thief, a dying man, asking another dying man to save him. And of course our Lord said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. How many times do we envy our co-workers who maybe make more money than us, or someone who is stronger than us? Again, our Lord is asking us to look at the example of a good thief. There was no envy in him. He didn't envy anything. And so there's something to be learned there. I think of how the good thief sometimes shames me because when I have friends that are attacking the church or making insult, do I even respond? A lot of times I just remain silent. But the good thief gives us that example to speak up, have courage. So there's something to learn there. But again, envy is something that is misguided. But our Lord gives us the example of the two thieves to help us. We move to the sin of lust, and of course our Lord uh, made a great reparation for the sins of the flesh. Not only did he was stripped naked for the sins of shame, but he actually was unfleshed. And so he makes this reparation that I think sometimes we don't really look at, because most depictions of our Lord on the crucifix are really uh, a little bit of blood, not much. But you know, the movie The Passion and what we know of crucifixion, our Lord's flesh was hanging off. You know, he just, people couldn't even look at him. And uh, again, he did that as an act of reparation for our sins of the flesh. But to answer the, the problem, he gave to us the Blessed Mother as, uh, as a model, but also as a help. I always say that she is the most beautiful form of protective custody that we could ever have. I, I, I challenge men, I say, you know, I said in my first talk, just do this, but take the Blessed Mother home with you today if you haven't already. Get her in your car, and she's going to ride shotgun, and she's going to come home with you. And she's going to start to live with you as if she actually was very much a part of your life. And you can imagine, every mother loves to follow the activities of her children. I still play hockey, even though I'm older, but uh, I enjoy it. It's more of a social number, the exercise, and the exercise. But I still enjoy going to hockey, and I still enjoy the beers after hockey with my friends. Can you imagine, though, those mothers saying, Oh, I want to go to the hockey game. I want to watch you play hockey. And you go, Okay, Mom, you can come watch me play hockey. But you know when I'm upstairs with the guys, you think you're going to have six beers or two? Because the bus mother's there now, my mom's there. And then when I come home, when I get on the computer, and the bus mother sits beside me and says, Hey, what you looking at the computer there? You know, do you think I'm going to be looking at pornography? No, because the bus mother is truly in my life. So she can be this great form of protective custody to guard you if you want to buy in, if you really want to buy in. We're talking about the saints in my first talk about how they help, but I actually have a picture of St. Maria Goretti on the one side of my computer. And I have a picture of St. Lucy of Syracuse. It's this, um, she's gone her eyes on the cloud. She was tortured. And it's those two pictures, those two saints that helped me. They're my covenant eyes. I sit down in front of the computer, and there's those two saints, my two girlfriends, actually challenging me to say, now don't fall, don't go down that road. And of course, it's been a great help. So do whatever you can, but taking the Blessed Mother home into your life is a great idea. 
And so, again, Mary is the refuge of sinners. And you look who's with her? Magdalene, the converted prostitute. She had an encounter with purity, who is Christ, and the Lord gave her as a gift, Mary, because she became our mother. At that moment, our Lord said, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. She became our mother. And so again, she is the refuge of sinners. So you can see how Sheen just masterfully um, shows us these links and gives us these, these helps. And I know for myself, that's exactly what I felt was, I felt this conversion of starting to feel sorrow that my sin cost our Lord. And I think of Mary, and again, just not to leave too quickly about woman behold your son, son behold your mother. But there was something that happened in my life when I looked upon the crucifix and it was, uh, had a friend that was involved with a very serious accident, accident as a drunk driver. And, uh, you know, again, the friend, my friend was fine, but he, he created three vehicles. Um, he felt terrible about what happened. And I said to my friend, I said, just imagine if you killed somebody. And he says, yeah, that would be horrible, but yet, on the six o'clock news, what do we see? We see story after story of children losing their lives because of drunk drivers. And so I think of this one story where the drunk driver sobered up in jail and then had this great sense of sorrow and then went to the mother and said, I'm sorry I killed your child, please forgive me. And we always had to wonder, how would that mother react? You know, will she just say, well, I hope you go to jail and you suffer forever and you beat up every day and then when you die, you go straight to hell? Or would that mother say, I forgive you, I love you, you were drunk, you didn't know what you were doing? One day I started looking at the crucifix and I realized the similarity that we're all kind of drunk drivers and that we blindly put our Lord on the cross with our sin. It was our sin that caused our Lord to go on the crucifix. And yet, Something, a light went on, and I thought, you know what? I've never apologized to the mother of who I put her son on the cross. And it's when I apologized to the Blessed Mother that my relationship with Mary increased. It was like we reconciled, and she said, okay, now we can move forward. I would challenge each and every one of you men, if you haven't, to ponder that, to think about reconciling with Mary and apologizing for your role that you play in the death of her son. Everybody's saying, I want a, a deeper devotion to Mary. I want to love her more. Sometimes we have to say we're sorry. As a guy, those are the hardest words for a man to say. I'm sorry. So to apologize and say you're sorry to bless another is sometimes the hardest thing, but the best thing we can do. So again, not that I'm double-dog daring you or whatever, but to consider that, to increase your devotion to bless and love and your love for her, again, reconcile with her. Just again, something very beautiful that's happened in many men's lives. Now, the sin of pride, this is one that all of us struggle with, and of course, because there's three types of pride. There's intellectual pride, social pride, and financial pride. Now, the intellectual pride we see all the time, okay, the know-it-all. I mean, how many of us have friends that are know-it-alls? Sometimes we fall prey to that too. We think we know it all. But if you think you know it all, there's no room for God to put anything in there. So there's something very scary about the know-it-all. But 
uh, I think of the wise men. They, they knew a great deal, but they were humble enough to say, we don't know everything. But the sin of pride, one thing that Bishop Shane wrote that really humbled me was he said, why are you so proud? You know, chemically, chemically, when I look at all of you, chemically, you know, you probably have enough iron in you to make one nail. You have enough oil to make seven bars of soap. Uh, you've got enough phosphorus in your body to make 2,000 matches. You've got enough sugar in you to make two lumps of sugar. So chemically, you're worth $4.73. That's all you're worth, okay? $4.73. But your soul is worth everything. It's worth everything. What does it matter if a man gain the whole world but loses a mortal soul? That humbled me. Because, again, why am I so proud? I'm worth four dollars. No, I'm worth seven dollars. I'm a bigger guy. <laughs> so, chemically, I'm worth so little, but my soul is worth so much. So, and, and Jesus said, I mean, God resists the proud. He resists the proud. Uh, so we need to become humble. We need to become humble. Intellectual pride, social pride, financial pride. But again, He's asking us to be humble. And He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew. What the pains of an atheist who goes to sleep every night, kind of with one eye open, still half believing. Uh, but again, our Lord, those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, glory in your humility, for humility is truth and the path to true greatness. Be humble. We've heard that a few times today. All right, the sin of gluttony, and our Lord says the words, I thirst. And uh, again, it is a struggle. We live in a world where food is celebrated. I watch television. What do I see? The cooking channel, that show, that show. So, gluttony uh, is something that really many people struggle with as food is celebrated. But gluttony isn't just food and drink. Gluttony can be to our addiction to sports and to other things. And I think Archbishop Sheen wrote in 1939, Victor Advice, he said, he said, there's more health clubs in America than there is spiritual retreat houses. There's more health clubs in America than spiritual retreat houses. And I thought, yeah, he's right, that was in 1939, but even today, there's health clubs on every corner. Now, Marco, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's still <laughs> We need that. But what he was trying to really emphasize is that men, when they lose sight of their soul, when they stop thinking about a higher love, when they, their attention turns to their body, and that's what they just are consumed by. Archbishop Sheen also wrote, he said, you know, everybody wants to work up two hours a day, but if I ask you to spend five minutes on your knees, it's, uh, there's a revolt, there's a revolt. He didn't mince words, he never wasted words. He just told it like it is. We have more of this than that, and we're looking towards our bodies more than our souls. And so when we lose sight of our souls, who becomes our God? Our Lord is saying, I thirst because He's thirsting for a relationship with us. He's thirsting for time with us. And so I think even just those words I thirst to meditate on, Mother Teresa's sisters, the Sisters of Charity, every chapel all over the world has the tabernacle, and right beside the tabernacle is the crucified Lord with the words I thirst. 
Her whole apostolic work is based on the words of our Lord, I thirst. He thirsts to be comforted, and he thirsts for our, our companionship. He is the shepherd looking for the sheep. And so there is a great deal of things to learn from the words of I thirst. You know, we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We need to cultivate a spiritual hunger and thirst. One thing that I find is, especially during the season of Lent, is that, you know, we pray, we give alms, we sacrifice. And I think one thing she brought to the attention was the, he, he brought to our attention the poor. And he, he said, you know, think about all the movies we go to, think about all the dinners we go to, you know, when you stand before God, who's going to sway God is the poor. What do we do for the poor? And so he challenged people. He says, you know, give them one movie a month. Take that equivalent amount of money and give it to the poor. If you go to Boston Pizza twice a month, give them one of them and give the money to the poor. So he kind of really, you know, challenged us in a nice way just to say, give things up. Think of the poor and be thankful. How many people thank God for the talent they have? You know, the singers today, the actors, do they really ever thank God for their talent? Many of us are tradespeople, some of us are accountants, some of us are lawyers, some of us are doctors. But do we thank the Lord for the gifts that He's given us, the talent? And she would say, look at that parable, the Bible story with the lepers. He healed ten lepers, and only one thanked him. Let us be that one who thanks the Lord, and not the other nine. But again, to be thankful, to be thankful, to be thankful. Because our Lord thirsts for our us. I think of the, the sin of laziness that many of us struggle with. That it's not so much physical laziness, it's the spiritual laziness. The spiritual sloth we have, uh, not saying our prayers. Or saying our prayers in a rush. Um, or really just thinking, you know, I'll, I'll get holy later. I love St. Augustine. I want to be a saint, but not today. Uh, maybe next week. It's, we can be like St. Augustine with that attitude. We have to, uh, some people would say, get our done. Some people would say, get to it. Uh, it's not there's a Nike swoosh there. I'll be underneath the cross. I love Nike. I'd love to do something like that. But our Lord says it's finished. He came to complete the work of his Father. He came to save us. He came to teach us. And so he makes reparation and he shows us the way by making work holy. He became a carpenter. He worked hard, but he always had that mission. He was 12 years old and they found him in the temple. He said, do you not know that I'm busy about my father's business? So he gives us the example to keep working, keep working, keep working for the kingdom, and to not fall into the sin of spiritual sloth. So again, and one thing about the Lord too, there's a saying that some people say, you know, I hope that you never die too soon or too early. It's funny, when we look at our Lord, no one ever says, he died too early. When we see a child die at three years old from cancer, or we see uh, 
someone 40 years old died in a car accident, we don't really think, oh, they died too early, they died too soon. But for our Lord, we never say he died too soon. Because his death, this is what he came into the world to do, is to die. Every one of us here came into this world to live. Our Lord came into the world to die. That was his mission. And so again, it leads by example, and then we're to lay down our life for our loved ones, for the kingdom. But again, he never didn't die too soon, and may we never die too soon. May we complete the work that the Lord has given us. The very last sin that I'll spend some time on is that sin of greed or covetedness. And Archbishop Sheen wrote that the sin of a young man is lust. The sin of a middle-aged man is power, prestige, position. And the sin of an old man is greed. And I was pondering that and I, you know, I'm getting older and I'm with a lot of seniors now. I volunteer at the, at the nursing home and I start to see this where some older people become very possessive of their, of their things. They worked hard for it. It's mine. And there is greed even among young people too, but is it yours or is it God's? No, who really owns it? But if that spirit of our Lord said from the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, to give God your will, to give him that. But it's a great way to counteract our greed, because we always want things for ourselves. But really do we want to give things to God? Every possession I have is not mine. I can't take any of it with me. I can only take the good works that I did here on earth. We leave it all behind. We leave it all behind. So I think if there's two things that she teaches about this last word. Is one, we'll never really be happy in this world. We'll never really be happy. There's always going to be disappointments. Our happiness is in heaven. And two, the more that we're attached to this world, the harder it will be for us to leave it. So true. The more we're attached to this world, the harder it will be for us to leave it. And that's what my word does. He says, give God your will. Your life is not your own. Give it to God. And it'll be a lot easier to die. So you can see these seven last words are the antidote for all of us that struggle with the seven deadly sins. And it's a great uh, examination of conscience to just uh, meditate on the seven last words. To say, what a confession. Okay, let me just go. Father, forgive me. They don't know what they're doing. The sins of anger. This day you'll be with me in paradise. The sins of envy. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. The sins of lust. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me for the sins of pride? For the sins of gluttony, I thirst. For the sins of laziness, it is finished. And for the sins of greed, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Words of wisdom for us to meditate upon. And may I also ask you to make the crucifix a part of your life. I, I give parish missions, and always the first talk I give on the missions is where's the crucifix in your life? And, you know, for a lot of us, we might have a rosary on the dash of our car. But where is the crucifix? How many of us look upon the crucifix and say to the Lord, thank you for dying for me? 
Thank you for dying for me. We, we've lost this devotion. We've lost this devotion of gazing upon the crucifix. In fact, legislation has removed the crucifix from a lot of hospitals, office buildings. This is offensive. It offends people. One of the saddest parts of my job is that, you know, I'm in everybody's house in the basement. So before I leave the house as the gas man, I have to relight the furnace, relight the water heater. And I've been in 20,000 homes over the years, relighting water heaters, relighting furnaces. And ultimately I go down in the basement and I kneel down in front of the furnace to light the pilot light. And so many times I see beautiful, beautiful pictures of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Beautiful crucifixes, all in the furniture. And of course, I go to the customer, I say, that's a beautiful picture of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, that's a beautiful crucifix you have. Why don't you hang it up in, your, in the living room? That's my grandma's, that's my mom's. What would the neighbors think if I put the crucifix up? Because they're ashamed of the cross, because it convicts them. As I said before, you think, you say, I'm the drunk driver, that had something to do with his death. And Archbishop Shin wrote so many times, he said, you can have a statue of the Buddha in your garden, have a picture of Niagara Falls on your walls, but you put a crucifix on your desk for three days, and it changes you. It convicts you. You had something to do with it. And so again, the crucifix, where is it in your life? You know, I challenge you to go home today. If I gave you $100 for every crucifix you could bring back tomorrow, I'm sure you'd find dozens of crucifixes. But put the crucifix on your desk and look at it for three days. It'll change you. Put a crucifix in your car. Put a crucifix on your night table. Start putting crucifixes in places where you're going to interact and meditate on our Lord's passion. Just something again. This is a step up conference. I'm asking you to step up your interaction with your crucifix. The dialogue with our Lord. Sheen said there's two classes of souls in the world. Those who have the courage to contemplate the crucifix and the cowards who run from it. Let us not be cowards, let us be men of God. Let us run to the crucifix. And may we say the words of St. Thomas Aquinas, have learned more from the crucifix than any book. Men pray that our Lord who died on the cross for us and taught us even from the cross will inspire us to be saints. God bless you.